then suddenly behind the glass, there's my father, shaved, broken, like a father I have never known. We both cried, and it was one of those things that you cannot make sense of. This is Cold War Conversations. Today, December 22nd, 1989, the dictatorial regime of Nikolai Ceausescu was overthrown. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And I'm here to host this final program from the German Democratic Republic for you. Welcome to Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. At 2am on the 10th of March 1983, 12-year-old Carmen Bugan was home alone after her father had left for Bucharest. That afternoon, Carmen returned from school to find secret police in her living room. Her father's protest against the regime had changed her life forever. This is her story. This is one of the most powerful stories I have recorded so far. What you will hear, in Carmen's own words, is an incredibly emotional story about childhood, family, spirit and humanity. Please do stay and listen right to the end. If you want to support our work in preserving Cold War history like Carmen's, then for only about $3, £3 or €3 per month, you can really help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too. You'll also get a Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly supporter as a thank you, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Carmen Buga to our Cold War conversation. I had my parents, my mother, my father, and we were, um, both my sister and I were born sort of in an arms of a large family in a village. Uh, we had our grandparents. Um, we had specifically my mother's grandparents who adopted her when she was orphaned at the age of three and, and raised her as her, as their own child. And, um, and then we had my grandmother on the side of my father. Uh, there was a bit of a strained relationship between my father and his father that had to do with my father's uh, political dissidents. But um, we were very close to his mother. And um, so both families had many people in them, and then the community was, uh, was very close-knit. So, you know, I like to think that I was born more or less in a, in a large family rather than just um, my mother and my father. Yeah, and it, it comes across the strong relationship with your uh, grandparents in, in the book as well. Absolutely, yes. I mean, uh, we were raised um, in the early life by my maternal grandparents, 
and um, they have remained in my heart all throughout the life because of their kindness and um, their generosity, their sense of humor. It was just they gave us the life that sustained, I think, all of us really um, through all the way through exile. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that that absolutely comes across the warmth that that you've got in the, in that relationship with with your grandparents. And what did your mother and father do for employment? So, um my mother um had a big well she was a teacher. She was a school teacher. She was teaching biology to middle school children when she met my father. And uh, my father uh, was a radio repairman. And, um, but he, when he met my mother, he, he was just a few months out of prison because he had tried to escape from Romania earlier. She had no idea that he had been incarcerated for political problems before. So, but yes, he was a radio repairman and, and she was a school teacher. When you were at school, can you just tell me a little bit about you know, school life and what that was like? Yeah, so, so I was born in 1970. In 1976, I started school in the early 1980s um, in a very small village called Draganesht um, in Moldavia, very secluded. Politics didn't really um, make their way around there, um, except for my father <laughs> and his trouble <laughs> with politics. Um, but um, we were um, subjected to the very standard East European education, which was um, indoctrination in uh, communist uh, thinking, uh, a lot of praise for, for the leader for us was Nicolae Ceausescu, a lot of um, sort of disregard for religion, but yet at the same time, and this is very special, um, in a village, is we had this double life where people were going to church anyway, where they were going to confession and baptizing their children anyway, and doing all the rituals that we learned from my grandparents uh, specifically. And then at school, it was all the op- opiate of the masses and, you know, all of the communist uh, rhetoric that, you know, we should be independent human beings and we shouldn't depend on superstitions. But also the communists, there's a third layer to this. Communists had the view of churches and monasteries and religion as a sort of cultural patrimony. And often they also used the priests um, in the churches to get a sense of how communities responded to the, the various political measures that were taken and economic measures that were taken on the country. So a lot of the priests were also informers. Right, and this was to the Securitate. This was, yeah, the Securitate, the the secret police. But school was very rigorous. We um, we we had a sort of very strong uh, foundational education, and you know uh, some of the uh, literature that we studied. There was Romanian literature, but there was world history. There was classical literature. There was strong math. You know, all, all of these things. I, I suppose that for communists, that was important to educate their people as much in their doctrine as, as in uh, sort of giving people a sort of uh, good general education, foundational education. Yeah, and presumably you uh, had to be in the pioneers as well. 
Yes, I was a pioneer, of course. Um, everybody was made a pioneer from kindergarten, I think. And we had those beautiful little uh, red scarves with a with a Romanian flag at the edges, and you tied it, and you felt all part of the large community. For us, it was a game at the very beginning um, that was beautiful in a sense. Uh, but you know, you also felt that you were controlled from very early in life, that you had to think the right way. There was a right way to think, there was a wrong way to think. And we knew that we were in school to learn to think the right way. And the right way was to put ourselves in the service of the community, to be humble. All of the personal achievements had to be seen uh, through a sense of pride that we actually use those to contribute to the community rather than to individuate ourselves. That was the main uh, thinking. So, you know, we were <laughs> picking up the, the bottles and the garbage and painting the trees and doing voluntary work. Everything was community, community, community to prove that we're useful to the party and to the society. Very strange. Yeah, and I think you, you also describe in the book the uh, corporal punishment that was carried out in, in the schools as well. Yes, that, this was very stern. Um, we had regular beatings from the teachers. Nobody thought anything about it. Uh, both, well, the parents were very, very disciplinarian as well. But the schools, yes, um, failure to, well, anything really. Uh, if you had dirt under your nails, you got a beating. If your uniform was dirty, you got a beating. If you failed your test, you got a beating. It was a... <laughs> Uh, the, the discipline was all based in corporal punishment and fear. So we knew who was in charge and there was no way to miss that. Yeah, so this was really echoing what life was going to be like for you as an adult. Absolutely, yeah. A very strict sense of rule and um, obeying rule and uh, knowing the consequences. There was, it was very transparent in this sense. There was, uh, there was no, um, how do you say, false expectation that you know you could somehow break from the mold no way yeah yeah and i was surprised to see that your parents had a car was that unusual in romania during that period yes that was very unusual my parents had a car and um also we had one of i think i'm not sure if it was the first phone in a village or the second or something like this my father repaired TVs and radios, and um, he, at that time, this was a very lucrative, a very important job you could have. And so uh, many times he was paid in, paid, sorry, in kind. That is, somebody would give him a goose or somebody would give him eggs or flour, whatever, from the villages in direct payment for, you know, his services. But he also earned um, a bit of money, so we had a car. Um, we, they were very proud of this, my parents. And then they're working in a shop as well, aren't they, your, your parents? Yes. So as soon as, uh, um, as soon as my parents were married, um, the secret police had called my mother in and informed her about my father's political um, dissidents and he's escaped to run away from the country 
And this, first of all, came as a shock. Secondly, they have told her that she, she can no longer educate the young generation. She could no longer be a, a teacher because she would pollute their minds um, with, with the political ideals of her husband. So she was given a choice, keep the marriage or keep the job. She chose the marriage. She chose my father. And so out of the job, she took, um, she took work at the local uh, cafe um, where she made the fried donuts and gave people tea and coffee. And then from there, she went on to uh, with my father. My father couldn't really do the books either for his radio repair shop. He needed someone because of his previous incarceration. And he couldn't do the books for the for the grocery. Uh, so she she was a manager, and he worked under her, as it were. And this is how they've come to uh, to work in a grocery store. The grocery store they managed was a few miles away from our home, so they commuted to a place called Ivesht, um, a, a little uh, market town, um, and um, and there they've they've done well for, I suppose, the 70s, uh, but the um, early 80s, they've really seen the brunt of food shortages. And um, that became the point where, where my father broke and he said, I have to do something. I have to do something. I cannot just live, breathe the air for nothing. I have to fight for everybody else. So that's when he started typing the secret police flyers at the typewriter. My mother helped him. That's because they had no bread to sell in a, in a bread lines. They had no meat to, to sell to people. People were blaming them, saying, well, you know, are you stealing the food? Yeah. And th this was due to um, Ceausescu's policy of paying off all his foreign debt very quickly. That's right. If you remember, that was the period where, uh, where when Ceausescu imposed all these drastic economic measures in order to pay off the debt as soon as possible. And so everything that was being produced was, uh, was sold, was traded, um, and um, the whole country has known starvation as, as never before. Um, we had the electricity um, cuts that were very regular. We fed all kinds of restrictions. Everybody had to have a ration card, but the ration card was useless because there was nothing to buy with a ration card. So those who lived in the villages, as we did, had the wonderful benefits of living off the farm. That is, my grandfather could take the grain to the stone mill in a village, and we would have flour. People in Bucharest couldn't do that. So that was harder for people who lived in towns. We had the chickens and we had the eggs. And so we did very well. You know, my grandparents had a cow. So, you know, you'd milk the cow twice a day. You could, you could have riches. You could have cheese. You could have butter. You could have buttermilk. I mean, who, you know, who's heard of that in a, in a cities at that point when all the stores were dark, they were empty, and people were in, in lines for phantom food. That, you know, somebody would spread the rumor that there is meat at this, uh, this shop, take your ration card and go and get it. People were staying in line for two days. There was nothing there. 
Yeah, and and your parents were getting a lot of abuse in the shop, from what I understand, as as you said before, from people implying that they were stealing food or hoarding food. Well, absolutely, yes, absolutely. So, um, on on one hand, they had to keep the loaf of bread for the for the town mayor, for the policeman, for the pharmacist, for the doctor, for the teachers, and then. On the other hand, there were people coming off the, the factory shifts, uh, were people coming from the fields, and they wanted their loaf of bread. There was not enough to go around. And so people started, um, you know, saying, are you stealing the bread? Are you stealing the sugar? No, 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 we're not. They were doing really, really extra hard work to try to get the stuff. I mean, themselves, they were bribing people who would bring the meat to... <laughs> to uh, to bring it to them, um, everybody stole. So you know, from the from the abattoir, somebody would steal meat, uh, and then the driver would steal some meat for his family. And everybody, the time he got to the store, there was nothing yeah. left. <laughs> so, so it was very difficult for them to deal with the fact that, you know, um, on one hand they had to cater to the authorities who had to be um, kept fed. Um, or else they, they would make up stories about them. On the other hand, you know, it, they would, I think more than being blamed, what they couldn't take was the crowd at five o'clock in a bread line where they knew they had enough bread to go to whoever comes there first, but there was never enough to feed everybody in the bread line. And seeing the suffering and seeing the um, just people tearing each other apart for a loaf of bread psychologically had worn them out to both. And this drives your father to protest against the the regime. And the, the start of that is him getting hold of a typewriter, which in, in itself seems quite innocuous. But in Romania, ownership of a typewriter was threatening to the state. Can you just describe what you what? you had to go through in order to own a typewriter? Yeah, so people who owned the typewriters had to um, have certain, well, there was a certain uh, criteria for that. They had to have a reason to have it. So either they had to be accountant, uh, the village accountant, a school secretary or something, or a journalist, somebody who is fully registered, Everybody who had a typewriter, if they wanted to to get it for themselves, had to be fingerprinted. The typewriter would be fingerprinted itself, um, so it could be traced directly in case any propaganda or any, anything that was illegal m- might have been found that was typed on a typewriter. They had to fully register themselves with the police, with the shop where they bought the typewriter, and, well... It was extremely rare for people to have one. My parents managed to get two, in fact. One, they registered. My mother has done an accounting course, and she and her excuse was she needed one for the store, to keep the books for the store. So that was fine. Everything was fingerprinted for both of them. They were, um, they were registered. But then they went to Bucharest and they got a secondhand typewriter at a shop where the two of them distracted the girl and she did not um, get their licenses, their identity cards to, um, to register the typewriter. 
And um, in Romania at that time, you couldn't find too many different models of typewriters. So they got an Erica, which to me as a child, they look completely identical. So I couldn't tell which one was on the table, which one my father buried. So they, they got two of them. They used one of them to type. My father came up with these leaflets. My mother helped uh, him type. They were, you know, put on winter gloves and they used the carbon paper. I don't know if you remember. I remember carbon paper. Do you remember <laughs> carbon paper? Yeah. It, it's this extraordinary, you know, the blue and the black carbon paper. You're typing and you get two, three copies off of it at the typewriter. Yeah. You had to really hit the buttons of the typewriter. So they got those and they, um, uh, they typed the flyers in the night um, and then they distributed them um, around the country. Right. And... Uh, before we go too much further there i i was really interested in the the story in the book of how you first discover that your father had been or 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 is a dissident and this is whilst he's listening to the radio i think it's either voice of america or radio free europe and uh, a priest is telling a story that's right yeah it's um Calcio Dumitrasa. he we actually met him in united states I think must have been 2000, to, uh, a bit after 2000. So he was a political dissident, and he met my father um, in prison in the 1960s. And um, he, he, because he emigrated to the United States or escaped, I'm not sure how he got here to the States. He was, um, he was telling his life story on a radio, and he, he talked about my father. And um, my father was, uh, well, crying. My father really obsessed about Radio Free Europe and the Voice of America, and I loved listening to those uh, uh, radio stations with him as a child. I was absolutely fascinated. Everything was different from what we were hearing, and it was so fresh. Um, And um, so he was crying, and it was really, he, he didn't, tell me he recorded the programs and then later on the Securitate asked me about them. I didn't know an answer to them. I didn't know who this man was until much later. Um, But that's when I knew that something was going on. But then, of course, my sister and I found found the Ceausescu portrait around the house in the attic. We found the, the black ribbons that symbolize funeral death. And then we found um, some of the flyers. In, in the attic. So we knew that he was up to something very dangerous later on. Right. And I think you confront your parents about this, don't you? Yes, we did. My sister and I were very scared. I mean, between listening to Radio Free Europe, which was illegal to listen to, so getting a sense from there that something dangerous was happening, um, seeing those things around the house and hearing the stories on Radio Free Europe of how those people who were caught in an act of dissent, either, you know, there were people who sent uh, letters uh, exposing the crimes of the government. They, they sent them via uh, trucks. Um, the, the truck drivers put the letters in, a, in a tires, um, of the trucks and smuggled them out, and then they were read on Radio Free Europe and other places. So we knew we knew that the dissidents um, was taking place in Romania. It wasn't a, a very happy place. 
we had all these uh, conflicting realities that were all around us that were very confusing. So, yes, we confronted our parents because, you know, having listened to Radio Free Europe, we knew that those people would be killed. So we, we told my parents, well, my father, to begin with, what, what are you doing? What will happen to you? What will happen to us? And so, um, as you remember from the book, you know, he, he, he said he will never do it again. He will burn everything. He burned everything. And then he went right back to doing these things. Yeah. Yeah. And... I think it's it's then that you realise there's there's more to your father than than you know because I think on a, a holiday shortly afterwards you then learn about his seven years in in prison before he met your mother. Yeah, that's right. We little by little the stories um, would come up, um, and there, there were stories that seemed um, outlandish in a sense, you know. Um, you know, him running through Bulgaria, going to the Iron Curtain with his friend, uh, trying to hijack an airplane to run, um, not agreeing with, uh, with the communist um, ideas, you know, uh, being in love with, with, with the sense of democracy that was coming over the wires from the Radio Free Europe and the Voice of America, or a whole life outside the borders. So we, we were finding out little by little, but all of them were so unclear conversations. They, they were never, you know, we at that age, we were never told what happened with him. Yeah. I, and Because they wanted to shelter us from, from too much. Well, and I guess you're you're effectively leading a double life at school as well, because you know you obviously can't mention Voice of America, Radio Free Europe. You can't mention your religious beliefs, so you have to act like a different person when you're at school. Yes, it's true, but then everybody did. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. So I think there was a mutual agreement. If you don't say, I don't say. You don't talk, I don't talk. And if we talk, we forget about it. Um, right. There was also that sense. It was clear. I mean, um, you know, my grandmother taught me, say anything they want you to say, um, that God is a superstition. But when you do that, cross yourself with your tongue inside your mouth and God will forgive you because you have to do that. You know, so it, it was definitely a double life there um, that has really uh, impacted me that sense that you can do one thing and think another thing. Um, ask for forgiveness for something you've done but you didn't want to do. There was a, the, that sense of morality, um, of questioning what is truth, what is right, um, has originated there in, 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 in that kind of double behavior. I mean, you could, yeah. you could look at the, at the empty store and go back and say, well, it was just the crowd that was very nasty. I didn't get the food. You wouldn't go out to complain that there was no food because you knew you would be killed if you did that. And you knew that there were informers there. It's a very complex life, I think, that, you know, everybody lived. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that whole living that life, you know, must create a degree of of trauma and psychological 
or, or mental health problems in, in just trying to carry that off for such a period of time. Yes, and I think everybody, uh, the, the most important consequence of this is um, the ability um, to trust people. In a sense, when you, when you live like that, you have to count only on yourself. And then you have to keep the truth to yourself and just sort of tally it to yourself all the time and say, well, you know, whatever people say, people say because they have to say it. It's, it's um, a, a consequence of totalitarianism, which I think is very specific. But then again, I think it's a, it's a consequence of the language of oppression that gives people these narratives, which are very damaging. So throughout my life, I've been carrying this lack of trust in people. It's taken a very, very long time for me um, living in the West to sort of assume that when somebody tells me the truth, they say it's the truth, then I have to take it at face value as the truth. Now, we're, we're sort of in the early 1980s and your your sister is really good at gymnastics and is taken off to a specialist school. Yes. Yes. Um, she wanted to be Nadia Pomonich, of course. Everybody did. I wanted to, <laughs> but I was, I was too chubby for that. I wasn't really – I couldn't really uh, – she was very skinny and she was really very fast and she wanted to be Nadia. That was – how do you break out of that except, you know, by becoming something extraordinary like Nadia was, an athlete? who will make everybody proud, and then, you know, uh, she was not uh, at risk of, of being <laughs> tormented by, 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 the, by anybody. And so um, my sister wanted to go to gymnastics school, and again, my parents have gone to, uh, to a great length to, to put her there. And um, she didn't really uh, follow, I mean, my father was was arrested shortly after, so she didn't follow through with that. Um, but she enjoyed um, gymnastics. She enjoyed being there. She uh, she enjoyed also being away from home. And um, I enjoyed staying home. I, I liked being home. She liked being away. Right, right. And and on the second uh, of February, nineteen eighty three, yeah, you have a brother. Yes. And that was um, that was such a, a, a mixed feeling and such an extraordinary feeling at the same time. My mother had so Catalin came early. He was an early bird, I think a few weeks early. Um, my mother had this uh, toxic pregnancy. She had some complications in it, mostly because of the stress, because of my father's manifestos and, and all of the surveillance that they felt that they were under. Now I found out from the secret police records that, in fact, they were very heavily surveyed and they had no idea how heavy that was. But um, uh, Catalina arrived on uh, February 2nd, 1983, and um, my father was thrilled to have a boy. Um, he went there, and then he, uh, Catalina was... Um, there were complications at birth, so, you know, he came home, but then he had to go to the hospital to the district hospital for uh, lung complications. And my father promised to go to give my mother clothes and to give 
to bring clothes for Catalin and bring some food and to bribe the doctors with whatever he could find um, in a village. You know, um, usually it would be cheese and eggs and stuff like this and canned cigarettes from the black market. And then he never showed up. In fact, he was arrested uh, shortly after. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that this is quite interesting because obviously, you know, your father has this young family. He's got a son who's less than a, a month old, but he still decides to go ahead. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War, uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. With a protest in, in Bucharest. So can you just tell me about that protest and then also take me through how you discovered that he'd gone ahead and, and done this, which is essentially the events of the 10th of March, 83. So um, my mother had to go to the hospital with Catalina, like I said, shortly after she came home and we saw him and, um, you know, he was, he, he was not well, but he was, he was a beautiful little kid. He just wanted to care for him. My father thought this was his moment because my mother wouldn't be there to monitor him and to talk him out of doing anything, anything stupid. And um, on 10 March 1983, I came from school. I was changing clothes, getting ready to go out. My grandmother was there from the day before. And uh, my father called her to stay with me for a few days because he said he had some business to do in Bucharest. Well, the night before his protest, I found I went to the garage and he had placards nailed on top of the car, which I haven't seen. Um, I just saw them tied. But I saw inside sacks of leaflets and beans on top. And uh, then at that point, I knew what he was going to do. I, I Because I've seen the flyers before, and I've seen him with the paints and placards and things before in the garage. And so I confronted him, and I told him, you know, I, I will put nails in your tire so you can't go because you can't go, you, you know. And he was very angry. We had a fight that night. And then at 3 in the morning, 2, 3 in the morning, he woke up and, and he left. He asked me to close the, the gate. And he said, not the gate, just close the door. He didn't want me to see. And he left for Bucharest. So I, when I came from school, um, suddenly the the front of the yard filled with cars, with black cars, with people, with, with men in coats, in dark coats, leather coats. Um, with the, lo the local policemen came and, well, they turned the, the house upside down and they started to ask me all these questions about my father, where he is, what did he do, what did I know, do we have guns in the house, 
that came was a full shock. I mean, I had no idea that he actually went to Bucharest and protested. I knew he was going to do something, but I had no idea how big um, the demonstration was. Um, he went to the city center of Bucharest, mounted the placards on the top of his car, and spread the manifestos in a very, very city center, uh, very close to, um, to the American embassy, to the Intercontinental Hotel. I then found 35 years later, something like that, or 25 years later, I found the map from the secret police that showed where he had the car parked and the route of his demonstration and where they apprehended him. That was extraordinary in itself, just finding all of that. Um, and then he disappeared from our lives, just like that. He disappeared. And then we were not allowed to get in touch with my mother. We were not allowed to, to go to the hospital. Um, she didn't know what happened to us, what happened to him. She was arrested in a hospital, interrogated, you know, 24 hours a day. She had, she had police there. She had people there. She had um, people recruited to be informers in a hospital with her. And um, it was empty. Everything, it was empty. It was, it was gone. The family life was gone. It, um, and I was 12 years old. <laughs> you are so young, yet you've got to almost pull the family together yourself or you've got to grow up really quickly because your your mother's not there. You're there in the house with your grandmother. But from what I understand, you're held for weeks there with very little food. They they don't feed you and they've sealed a load of the rooms as well so that you can't even use areas of the house. Yeah, I mean, that was what happened then was – first-hand lesson in oppression that I got at that age. I knew how strong they were, and I knew that they were stronger than God. It, th there was no way. They sealed every room in the house except the bathroom and the kitchen, um, and we, because we had beds in the kitchen, in a winter kitchen, and the stove there, so we could cook and we could sleep there. So I had no time to take clothes from the rooms to organize myself to take anything. Everything was um, torn apart, opened, inspected. Everything was ripped and thrown on the floors. The rooms were locked with, um, with they were tied with, with a rope and, and stamped with this uh, uh, red um, uh, wax with the stamp on it, the seal. So you couldn't attempt to break it because there will be so we, we were told that if we if we even attempt to touch those things the and to open the doors we'll go to prison that's it my grandfather was forbidden to come and take me he asked to take me uh to his house he said this is just a girl i had it's just a child you know let me take her with me they refused so i stayed there with my grandmother they confiscated all the food and then they said the lie that they gave it to the store and that my family had kilograms and kilograms of all kinds of things, of food. That was not true. But everything that they found, they took for themselves. They split it from themselves and they took it for their families. All the food that they found in the cupboards, in the attic, everything. 
And then the one thing that they forgot was a handful of walnuts that was left from, from the autumn before, from my grandfather's walnuts. And for three weeks, I lived on walnuts and water during that time. There was also a time when I couldn't, I couldn't wash, I couldn't shower. There was no way I could take a bath because they were always there day and night. They were always there. They made keys. They had, um, we saw them making keys. I saw them making keys. I saw them sort of spreading all of their wires in a garage and setting up all the microphones everywhere. And um, then I knew that nothing belonged to us anymore. Nothing belonged to us anymore. It was almost the... Another life that I couldn't imagine. And um, three weeks later, I, I was uh, I was way too thin to to to, to communicate properly. Uh, well, properly. I mean, I was I lost a lot of weight. Um, the town policeman took pity on me, and then he he brought my grandmother the first loaf of bread. And so, and that was it. It was uh, not possible for people, for the family to come and visit us. It was not possible for the neighbors to come and visit us. Um, it was the closest I have come to uh, thinking this is, this is over. I will never see my parents again. Um, it was not hard not to eat. <laughs> um, it, there was constantly someone there. And um, I don't know how we've done it. My grandma had drank. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't take the Floria, which is a sherry that my mom's homemade sherry. So she had a shot of sherry every day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we, we shared the walnuts and she kept swearing at them. And uh, yeah, absolutely crazy. That, you know, that, that doesn't even, I, ca I can't even get to grips with what, what that what that would have been like. And the, the situation must have appeared hopeless to you at, at that point. Yes, like I said, I mean, there was no way. They wouldn't let me go to school for days. And then when I went to school, the teachers would yell at me in front of the class that, you know, you're a bad student, you didn't come to school, you only get, you know, two and threes out of tens, you know, you... you, you and then at school, there was a different kind of abuse. Everybody was encouraged to either not talk to me or throw stones at me, you know, to call me, you know, oh, your father is in jail. He's a thief. He's, um, you know, the, the, some of the teachers, the history teacher particularly, you know, said that my father was mentally ill. He was criminal. It was a different, was a different weeks before it would have been when my father would have fixed the car of the history teacher or the geography teacher for free <laughs> because my father loved fixing cars and he knew everything about engines. And then suddenly he was an enemy of the state and he was an enemy of the community. And from Mr. Bogan with the hat and the tie and, and the suit, he was a, a common criminal who was a danger to himself and to family. It was really... I, there is something to be said about being 12, I must say. At that age, things just move very fast, and there is a resilience in children. This is why I wanted to write the memoir from the point of view of the child, because 
often people don't know what it's like to be a child and go through this. It would have been easier to write the book as an adult looking back, but that a child is shielded somehow from the horrors, partly because there is an innocence, partly because there is a lack of education in the realities, what truth is, what justice is. A child accepts certain things, and I think this has helped me a lot and helped my sister, just the, the natural resilience of being a child and the fact that we didn't know everything. So we, we just did as we were told, and uh, we followed you know, our instinct to just, you know, what do I do to stay out of danger? And there, there is one teacher, though, Lucia, who does help you. Yes, the, the literature teacher, yes. And this becomes, this becomes her kindness becomes a lifeline to literature for me. And this is, you know, she, she is responsible in a great part for why I have become a writer. She um, she used the the excuse of having to teach me all the <laughs> declinations of <laughs> nouns and um, you know all the grammar and she she used that as a, a as a way to spend more time with me. But more importantly, she used her role as somebody who should punish me to turn it around. So she would call me from the class, be, being very mean, you know get to the teacher's office, you know, you're yelling at me, and then there she would feed me sandwiches. She took pity on me. Um, and those sandwiches helped me live. The salami and bread, they tasted so good with the snot and the tears, I, I, <laughs> I can't tell you how good they were. Um, and how she found those, I have no idea, because it was really hard to find salami then too. But somehow she managed and um, was all in silence. So, you know, that also that kind of gratitude, um, that kindness that she had um, were, were two things that helped me later on as well. Yeah, I, I, I found that re really touching that, you know, in, in amongst all this darkness, there was that light for you with, with this teacher that did sort of drive this lifelong love of uh, literature I, d I found that really re really powerful as as i did the whole story i mean i d i yeah i i did find it um so moving the book itself is a really interesting book because you the first part of it is sort of like your your early childhood up to that day in march 1983 and it's almost poetic in the, in the way that it's it, it's written and then the whole world turns upside down and there's then you know the story of your your life after that day and you, your mother returns home with uh Catalin uh have I pronounced his name yeah, right Catalin yes Catalin okay great I'm I'm not known for my pronunciation Carmen <laughs> so she uh, returns with with Catalin, but she's she's not able to uh, teach, and I think she ends up putting together wicker baskets to uh, try and make ends meet. Yes, so 
when she was uh, allowed to come back from the hospital and uh, to return home to us, she was not allowed to work. Now, here's the catch. If you don't work, you're a parasite, so you're taken to prison. But when she went to ask for work, she wasn't given work because she was the wife of a political dissident. So she was a sort of a, a, an unwanted person, a sort of a, we, we were social garbage, you know. So she was a social garbage. That was the label we lived with then. And um, she asked, um, I remember the, this is something that still makes me angry now. She went to the town collective where, you know, people raise the, the cows. And she said, I want the job feeding cows. I just want to earn money to look for my family. And so, and she was refused the job. She was, uh, she was refused. She said, no, you're not, it's not safe for us, for you to be here. It's not safe for you. So it's no. She went to every single place that she could think of, and she asked and she begged for work, and she wasn't given work. Eventually, somebody told her, you know, there is a lot of shortage of people at the wicker basket factory. And then she was, I assume, whenever they... They put in place all the informers, then they gave her the job there as well. And uh, so she worked there. The conditions were horrifying. I mean, I would go and visit her at work to bring her some food or to see her. And, you know, they worked in a cement room, those uh, uh, the, the willow um, branches, they have to, the twigs, they, they have to be um, wet. So they have to be kept in wet, in wet, in buckets. So if, if you can think about, you know, cold weather outside and your hands in constant, uh, constantly wet, uh, weaving those, it was horrible. She, she developed tendonitis. She, I mean, many people couldn't work anymore because their hands would be damaged. Everything was done by hand. And it was very, very hard work. And so she worked there. Um, and then later on, she worked at a knitting factory. She found the job at a knitting factory. Again, there were enough informers there. Um, and this is where she worked until before she was fired and we left the country. Yeah, yeah. Well, for quite some time, you don't know whether your father is alive or dead, but then you are told that he's in prison and that you can visit him. Yes. So this is... Um, this is, again, my brother came home with my mother after a, about a couple of months or so. Then my brother was, was uh, very ill again, so she had to go. The local doctor said donate him to research, get rid of him. He will never, he will never walk. He will never keep his neck. He will never, he, he, he is damaged. So my mother took him in her arms, went to Bucharest to the children's hospital, and pounded on the gates and said, I want to talk to the professor. Nobody knew <laughs> who she was talking about. She didn't know who she was talking about, but she said she wanted to talk to the professor who teaches there. Anyway, they let her in. She was in a hospital in Bucharest. During this time, we have received, um, I received a notice from the secret police. They, they've come to tell me that I could go visit my father 
at the Rahova prison, which is a holding prison in Bucharest for political dissidents. And I was, I went to visit him there and to bring news to my mother that he was alive. Um, and can you describe that, that first visit to your father in prison? What, what was that like? So I was told that I had to, I, I took one of my cousins because at that point I still couldn't really travel or by myself. They, had, they required an adult to be with me. So my cousin, he, he was much older than me. Um, he came along for, for the trip. We had to present ourselves to my father's interrogator, who I met before, because it was the man who came to unearth the, right, the, the typewriter from the ground, so where my father left it buried. And so I knew him. Um, so I went to present myself to the headquarters of the secret police first, and there they called the prison and they gave me directions, you know, which trams, which buses to take to get there, and the address. And that was, um, I was quite strong because when I went to, to ask to see this, uh, uh, this colonel uh, who I had to see before my father, before the interview with my father, people at uh, the gate asked me if I was the colonel's daughter. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm not his daughter by any means. No, I'm the daughter of a prisoner. And um, so they let me in. I waited. I talked to him. I got the directions. I was quite gutsy. When I got to the prison, though, just seeing all the prisoners with their, you know, the striped uniforms, the dilapidated buses and the, the big metal gates going in, it was first trip in hell. Um, and I, I was, it, it stayed with me for life. And going through all these different gates to get in, all these narrow corridors and buildings, chains and people with uniforms of the policemen and all this. And then suddenly behind the glass, there's my father, shaved, broken, like a father I have never known. And we both cried and it was one of those things that you cannot make sense of because what I wanted to do is to run to him, to hug him, to take him home, to somehow protect him. And I wanted him to protect me because it didn't feel like a real thing. It felt like a weird nightmare. And uh, he was crying and then, you know, we, I gave him, there was a list of things I had to give to him, some food and some clothing um, and then at the end of the visit, what I remember stayed with me. And then that's when I got a sense that it was my father again. He said, oh, my God, you look horrible. Look at you. You're all sunburned. And then I thought, OK, well, this is my old father. He, he would say something critical like this. He would be his, his sort of um, his old self. He would say something to, that, you know, that, that would somehow upset me in some way. Um, and then I knew I was reassured that he was fine when I left. And then I went to my mother. But it was one of those visits when uh, I've never been to a prison before, obviously. Um, I've never seen a criminal before in my life. And it compounded with everything was the fact that I was just a preteen. It's just the time in your life when you don't want to feel humiliated. 
when you don't want to feel embarrassed, when you don't, when you go, when you don't want to have a father like this, right? You don't want to have a father who is in prison at that age. That was very strong for me. Um, it, it took years for me to sort of come around and say this should have been a moment of pride because he survived something terrible and I survived something terrible. But at that point, it meant humiliation and it meant fear. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you it was almost, it almost comes across almost like anger that as to what he'd brought on the family that could have been avoided. Yeah, this has been definitely a big feature of our lives, the sense of betrayal. Not that he particularly betrayed us, but the sense that somehow, it's again, this is a fundamental moral question. Do you put, do you put truth or freedom ahead of your family? Do you put your family safety and live like a coward because you're too scared to look for the truth. I mean, this we had to reckon with this all of our lives. And there is no right answer to this. There is no judgment. I have chosen not to judge it, but I have felt the brunt. The only takeaway I have from this is that heroism is not what it appears in flags in books. It's something very painful. It's something very mundane and it's something that you know it's when you when you live with somebody like this you realize that there's, there's no how do you say there's nothing sort of extraordinary nobody praises you for being a hero everybody punishes you for being a hero it's a different side of, of, of the understanding of heroism that we have now so there is a there's a misery that you live with it. That's my takeaway from this. It's 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 a lot harder than you think. I mean, don't envy a hero ever. Do not envy a hero. A hero never wants to be a hero. It's too much sacrifice. And for us to be the family around him and not know what he went through on the other side of those walls and for him not to know what we suffered because of him, it was, you know, uh was awful. And we lived with this. But I think it's difficult to write a book in which you are honest about the costs of someone's asking for dignity and 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 blame. Because I think it's it's it could be easily read as oh she hated her father or oh the mother hated her husband. It's not that at all. It's just the complicated experience of having to live through this. We understood he had to do it. It took us some time to understand. First, we felt very angry with him. We resented him. And I think because the secret police had refused us access to him between the interviews, they were censoring our letters. They were sending our packages back with rotten food. They were not allowing us to see him. And also this initial visit took place quite late. He was under the impression for many years that we had abandoned him 
that he fought, in fact, for us and for the family, not just for the country. But we also abandoned him. And, you know, he was abandoned by his father before. At the beginning of the conversation, I was saying he had a tense relationship with his father. Well, his father abandoned him publicly and in a letter written to the police saying he disowns him because he's a political dissident. So my father was afraid of being abandoned. We didn't learn this until much, much later. But at that point is what you're saying. It's very difficult to make sense of what had happened. And as a child, I knew something very simple, which was my father left me. That's hard to get used to it. And yet I want to be with my father and I love him. Um, then, you know, I had dreams that, you know, I hated him and all of this, all of everything is mixed in together. It's not, it's not an easy explanation for anything. Well, I think that the way that you've explained it is make, makes a lot of sense. I think that, that, that it's understandable what you're explaining there. I think the thing is, is that most listeners can't even imagine being in that situation and having to deal with with something like that. But what you've just shared there is is amazingly powerful and and. I really appreciate you sharing that with myself and and obviously also the listeners too. Now, the Securitate forced your mother to divorce your father as well during this period as well, which would make him feel even more abandoned, I presume. Well, yes, and they've done the wonderful job to bring him three apples just before the divorce, saying that they come from my mom. And obviously the apple, the fruit of our childhood, the apples from our trees, he associated them with us, that he had three children that he willingly abandoned, and that now they're abandoning him. So they had a fight when he came back from prison, saying, you send me these apples. Why you send me these apples? My mother said, I never sent you these apples. It was... Um, I wrote a poem about it called The Divorce, about these apples, because they stayed with me. Like the symbolism, the, the psychological games that they played were also horrifying. You know, that he felt, my mother had to divorce him because she was ordered to. My, my brother was not allowed to attend kindergarten. Again, it's illegal to keep a child at home without education, but it was not possible to send him uh, if she stayed married to my father, she had to do this. You know, first she had to give her job because she married a political dissident. Then she had to divorce the political dissident anyway because he he took a public stance again, and her children were not allowed to school. So now she had to choose: Will my children go to school? Or will at that point, just before then, I was rejected with horrible grades, completely below failing. Um, at the, um, I, I applied to this uh, high school for the medical high school to become a nurse. And uh, it was a particularly prized high school in a district and, and I made my application and I failed. And it was clear that I was punished. It was clear, you know, my sister was punished as well. And, um, my mother was told, you have to divorce him if you want the children to go to school. If not, forget it. 
and uh, you 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 know will not your 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 job will not improve, your job situation will not improve. So she had to do it. But also there's another little story to this. The other that little story is that we didn't really know if he was alive or dead. So being able to call him to a divorce and to have him travel from across the country from Ayut to Tekuch, which is a, a day and a night uh, journey. Um, that is, we would know for sure that he was alive. So we had two reasons to do it. One, my mother was forced to do it. Secondly, it was actually a blessing for us to see that he is alive and the family to see him because it was, was supposed to be a public trial. And uh, so, yes, he did feel abandoned then, but they had the most wonderful oath of love at the, at the divorce. They spoke their minds, both of my parents. And, um, yeah, it was beautiful. He said, my wife never betrayed me. And I'm sure that at that point he thought, my wife betrayed me because she's divorcing me. And my mother said, I never wanted a better husband. And at that point, I'm sure she hated him for having done this to her. You understand? This is just how complicated it was. And they, they reestablished that connection with each other, and there we were. We were able to hug him for the first time. So it was 1995. Um, we were able to, to, to hug him for the first time, my sister and my brother and I. And it was, oh, my God, I can't tell you. <laughs> It was wonderful. It was really wonderful. And it was really humiliating. And it was really scary. And yet there were people under the courtroom in a courtyard who were chanting his name, Bugan, Bugan, Bugan. That also stayed in my life was something that, you know, the sense of pride in people is not dead. We're still alive in some way. And maybe my father was right. Maybe I should be more proud of him. Maybe I should just, you know, Shout, I'm his daughter. Ask me about him. I was so, it, it was such, such conflicting moments of that day. And that's, you know, that is the day that, you know, changed my life for good. Yeah. And he's, what surprised me is he's released from prison, which I, I was just surprised at you know, considering he was protesting against the state and that was such a dangerous thing to do, that they do end up releasing him. So February 1988, um, Ceausescu was forced under the pressure of Amnesty International, um, in the Sun Censorship, in fact, which is published in London there. And um, uh, there was a drive by Amnesty International, which was international. So El País... Um, Frankfurter, Ruschau, other places, they have um, posted these letters, these form letters about my father. It was a campaign and people had to sign them and send them to His Excellency Nikolai Ceausescu to release him. Now, there were other political prisoners, uh, not just my father. And under the pressure uh, from the United States government, who knew about the human rights abuses, um, Remember, Romania had most favorite uh, nation trading status um, around that time. Under the pressure from the United States government saying, you know, we'll, we'll take that away from you if you don't release your prisoners. 
Ceausescu declared an amnesty. So they have freed everybody 10 years and over for any reason whatsoever. They, I think, except for the, the murderers. Um, they, they freed. So this is why he was released. In fact, every time he went to prison, he was released because of an amnesty, not because his time was, was finished or because somebody did uh, some kind of intervention for him. And it, it's obvious that he's when he returns home, he is he's been damaged by his prison term. I mean, there's there's elements there that look like you know post traumatic stress disorder and paranoia, and probably rightly so because you're still under very intense surveillance, and the house is riddled with microphones. Yes, I mean at that time is when we officially went under house arrest what you call sort of traditional house arrest, which is we're allowed to go only certain places. And every time my father leaves the house, he has to go to the police to tell them where he is going, how long he would be gone and all this. Now, what seems as paranoia in a book, it turns out that it was a very um, natural reaction uh, to the surveillance But I was able to sort of find the context for this again in 2010 and 2013 when I found the files. I wrote to the book before I read the files. Now I know from the files all the transcripts of our conversation and all the machinery of the secret police to survey us and to intimidate us, which as I wrote the book, bearing the typewriter, I didn't know. I wrote it from my memories and from my family's memories. When I read now, it's over 4,500 pages. As I studied all this archival material, I found out, in fact, that the surveillance, all the traps that my parents were put in. I mean, my father was being called by uh, prostitutes, and uh, they offered to take him to places, to rooms and places. Again, he would have, of course, he refused. He would have never done that. But that the calls from the prostitutes talking to my mother, and to entice him to go was to arrest him for being with a prostitute and to break up the marriage, to say that he is an unfaithful man. There were death threats made to him in a night because he didn't show up at meeting points with, with people who supposedly were from Radio Free Europe. There were all these traps that now I found out about that we didn't know. We received those phone calls. We made our interpretations and we decided to stay safe as a family, not to go, not to talk to people. Um, so the, the post-traumatic stress disorder was there um, also and very strong. I mean, he, he asked permission from us to get up from the table and to go um, to drink water. May I get up? May I? He was beaten into such... Um, obedience that he couldn't see other people except for people who would command him. So that was awful. And then, of course, he wasn't paranoid because now I found out <laughs> um, that, you know, people were coming in the middle of the night with the keys. And according to the secret police monitoring itself, this is, this is part of the second memoir, the follow-up memoir that I wrote called Life Without a Country, for which I'm looking for a publisher now. 
Here I talk about the secret police uh, recording itself, recording us. There is a transcript saying at 1.32 in the morning, we the microphones read in the house, placed by them, registered the keys in the door, the dog barking, as if somebody stranger is at the door. The door doesn't, doesn't unlock, and so the steps are going away. So these are them trying to get into the house. So my father was patrolling with a hatchet inside the house, screaming and shouting, no one comes into my house where I kill them. So he's registered with all of this, all of that comes into it. Um, but at that point, it seemed, you know, like we were a bit paranoid of other people, like we were a bit, you know, scarred by all of this, which we were, but then again... <laughs> I, we were behaving naturally according to the reality in which we were then. Yeah, yeah, and th there's a, a a a ray of light for you during this period with uh, Sorin. Yes, yes, that was yes, my high school sweetheart. Who yes, who well, yeah, what a beautiful relationship with. Um, he would put snowdrops in my desk next to my books and would walk me home. And as a matter of fact, his sister um, and his mother, his family suffered plenty of interrogations because of that. Um, but yes, there was, a, there was one, one gentle, um, there was also Aurora, my best friend there, um, and we knew she was giving information, but we didn't know the difference between giving information or offering information. We didn't know because she was allowed to come and visit the house more than anybody else did. Um, she, was a, she was a middle school and high school friend. And then um, Sorin was, uh, was someone, you know, in a, in a more personal way was someone who was left you know, when, when I left, we made promises that obviously nobody could keep and um, was an 18-year-old sort of, you know, heart, heartbroken story <laughs> that ne never was meant to happen and, you know. This has been really... Um, I've, I'm, I'm lost for words in in, in terms of how interesting and, and touching that this has been so your father decides the only way out is to try and get some sort of exit visa from the u.s embassy yes and so he wrote to the um, uh, to the internal ministry um saying that he wants to leave it was clear he was not allowed to work when he was eventually allowed to go to work there were cars speeding at him um, he was afraid that he would be hurled out of the train um, on his commutes. Again, I have now I have transcripts, so I can I can see the other side. I can see actually the machinery behind. Then we didn't know. We just we just he would come home completely terrified um, that everybody was asking him which way he was going to take back from the railway station. Was he going to take the main road or the back roads by the cemetery? Um, he didn't know why people wanted to know all of this stuff. The, he didn't know why suddenly the cars would be speeding at him in a 
in the parking lot when he was the only one in the parking lot. There was this very um, stressful, it was clear we couldn't live there. So my father said, I'm going to, to ask to go. Um, but I think it, it also came from the hints from the local policeman because the local policeman said, you know, look, I lost a lot of weight. I'm very tired of spending my days and my nights behind your house. It would be better if you went. My father met in prison people who had the number to the American embassy, who had contact information to the American embassy. Some of those people have been doing sort of double roles. Um, they worked for the secret police, but then they were arrested because they, um, they, they sent letters abroad exposing some of the abuses. So there was a, there was a group, there were, I think, two or three people who we kept in touch since. In fact, one of them just died very recently. Um, and, um, and then, he, by the way, his daughter was shot in the back of her head at the age of 22 during the Romanian Revolution in Bucharest as a, uh, as a, as a punishment for the fact that he turned, uh, he turned against the secret police. Anyway, that's another story. But um, my father said we have to go. And so he wrote a letter, and um, I'm not sure what happened with the letter. He kept, he, he kept, he had a house arrest for sure, and he kept uh, being, he was called and interrogated over and over at the police station. Now, what we needed to also was someone to go to the American embassy and make a formal request that we're given political asylum. So since we're under house arrest and my father really had to go and my mother really had to go to report to the police, um, they decided that, well, we decided, I decided more than anybody else that I would go and bring my father's prison papers and write a testimony at the embassy and ask for family asylum. So I left in the middle of the night and um, I went to the embassy, um, I went to Bucharest, and I, uh, I called the embassy um, from, the, from the subway that is near it. I think it's about, it's a few minute walk, very short minute walk to the, to the doors of the embassy. And the consul came and met me there. They knew all about us. They knew... Um, of course, they would have known because of my father's protest, and, and they would have known the dissidents the, who were in Romania at that time. So, but the American, the American government couldn't make any move to take us unless we requested it. This is what we were told. And uh, so I went and I asked for political asylum. I got in with the guards coming at me with their guns. When I came out is when I got arrested. Um, and so I went and I, I said what we want to go. I wrote for many hours in there under notepads what happened to us. And um, they said, for sure, we will get visas, not to worry about. During this time that I was there, I, they told me they called the secret police. And so not to be afraid that when I go in, they will interrogate me. But there's nothing they could do because as... The minute I walked into the American embassy, we were under what they called international protection. And so when I came out of the embassy, 
the 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 guards came to me uh, the, you know there the embassy was had had patrols right that were going all around the block and so nobody could really just walk in you, you walk in you had to present yourself to the booth and say what do you want to do at the embassy so i just went without stopping when i came out they pulled me into the booth and you whore you little bitch what were you doing there and um, it was a, I think about 45 minutes that I was there. A lot of a lot of verbal abuse, but they've done nothing, uh, n- nothing, nothing to actually hurt me physically. Um, I said we're under international protection. Um, I was very gutsy. I, I held I held to to my strength. But then when I got to the train station, every time the the doors opened, that the train opened, I thought they were hurling me out of the doors. They would kill me on the way home. I didn't think I would ever make it home. Um, and I did. And uh, I, I, I told my family, then we got the visas very quickly. We got the letter, and, and then it became official. What happened after that, as soon as we knew that we got the visas, was the fight for the passports. And that lasted about 11 months. And that was pure hell. This is when they confiscated the house when they told us that we couldn't um, sell our furniture and we sold it anyway in a night to people um, to get the money to pay for our tickets to Italy because we had to go through the refugee camp, another refugee camp, but the truck, they had a triage um, center there where we had to be tested for, you know, all kinds of diseases that we might bring on in the United States. We had to be vetted as whatever good citizens who would come in and support the democracy. We had to go through courses about life in America and all of this. And um, so those months were the most difficult ones. The last, the last summer we lived in Bunipu Nikolais, back to my grandparents now. My grandmother died earlier in life before my father's arrest, but my grandfather was still there with Alzheimer's. We lived in his house before, um, and we slept outside on a porch in the summer and um, looked at the stars with the dog next to us and then the secret police patrolling the house of my grandfather. In the meantime, the thugs from the village were going and peeing and pooing in our yard and breaking things and... People would come to the to my grandfather saying that they vandalized the house, and it was the end. It was the end of Romania. Yeah, and I I think the 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 descriptions you you have of the news that the house has been confiscated, and those last hours that you spend in a house where there's so many memories and 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 stories there i f- i found really really touching th- those descriptions oh thank you i mean that was the house that we built ourselves um you know we, it's a house that we dreamed the four of us my sister and my parents uh and i the we planted the flowers we wanted the trees we wanted it was the house of our dreams and then it became the house, the prison, the house where we feared um, most for our lives. Um, 
And still, it was very difficult to let go of that house. It was very difficult. I've written a lot. I've written poems about it to sort of make sure that I don't forget it and to make sure that I stay. And then later on, I've written poems about wishing for another house and not finding one. And it's been, it's, it will always be the house of my dreams. I'm now trying to recreate this with my own children, the house of dreams. So we finally bought a house here in Stony Brook um, in 2016. And every year we plant another tree or another rose bush or something, trying to sort of recreate that joy of having our own place. Um, but that house will always be, you know, the house for me. Yeah, I mean the, the the descriptions you've got, and particularly when when you're saying goodbye to the village and your family and your grandfather, um, because I I did find that really quite a, a a tough part there because he's obviously um suffering from Alzheimer's, but um, he recognizes that you that you have to leave, but that you're never going to see him again. Yeah. Yes, that was, that was a difficult, that was another, well, there were many difficult moments during that time, but that was leaving him in the sunshine with birds, with the toy gun in a chair in a yard with the people wailing around us. They were basically keening as if it was a funeral. It was very difficult to leave him. And like I said, from the beginning of my life. I mean, this is the grandfather who, you know, on my 10th birthday, I remember him coming with a bottle of wine and the stack of flour. So my mom could make me a cake and there would be wine for the lunch table for the family. It, you know, th this kind of stuff that, you know, he would come in, you know, bring eggs and cheese. You know, th this was his idea of, of gifts. And then for St. Nick, uh, Saint, you know, St. Nick in December, um, he would leave, you know, little treats in our boots by the door and teach us to be good kids. I, and, and I remember talking to him when I was a kid about how much I wanted to learn my ABCs. And he, he would tell me stories about, about how he used to study by the candlelight when he was young. And it, he was a universe to me. You know, all these images of him, you know, sifting the beans and the wheat in a yard. And, you know, he, he was generous. He was beautiful. He was beautiful. I mean, you know, he would put us onto his horse, Steluza, and take us places. He would take us in his cart. He would go to pick up the grapes, you know, and eat the grapes and the cheese under the, you know, the walnut trees in a vineyard with him. And, you know, he made life as if it would never end. And you would always sort of smell the iodine, iodine from the walnuts. He, you would always smell the, the fresh bread. That, that was So leaving him was really difficult. It was really, really difficult because we didn't know. America was a map and a blank space in a mind. We had no idea what would happen, what we, we would do. Um, but then again, the ground fell from under us many times in those last five years in Romania. And, uh, and he was one of those people who was going to fall with it. He would never go back to him. He knew that. We knew that. 
We knew where we were lying when we said we'd come back. He wasn't there. He died after. And last year, my, not 2019, my, my last aunt, Stantis of Tika, who appears quite a lot in a book and also in my poems, she died. So that's sort of making those big circles sort of close now with Romania. Carmen, I'm immensely grateful for you sharing this story. Um, probably tell from my voice how moved I am. Um, Thank you. The, yeah, well, the book's called Burying the Typewriter, Childhood Under the Eye of the Secret Police by Carmen Bougan. I, well, you can tell, I really recommend it. It is a really powerful story um, of which you have been very lucky to hear from, from Carmen herself. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters, help keep us on the air then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Thanks again to all our financial supporters of the podcast, but a special thanks to our Politburo level Patreons, who are Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, and Jeffrey Jones, who are supporting us at thirty US dollars per month. Thank you. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com/slash/donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter. You'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, 
received the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. 